I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of First Thessalonians again. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, the Red Bible, it's uh, page 988. And we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 this morning. So First Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. Uh, this week I was introduced to uh, a new theory, something I'd never heard before, uh, and it's something that I thought would maybe gain a little bit more attention, but it didn't. Uh, and so I added this in at the beginning of the uh, week, thinking that by the end of the week y'all would all have heard of this, but I don't think you have. So let me introduce this theory, this idea to you. And it's a theory called scissor statements. Scissor statements. Uh, and what a scissor statement is, it's a statement that is intentionally designed to cause dissension between opposing groups. And in the article that I read, it was uh, presented as something uh, that could be used by foreign countries to create dissension in an enemy country. Uh, and the idea is behind this is that you would uh, get, a, get computers together, that you would plug an algorithm into a computer, that you would gather data from social media sites about what everyone is angry about, you plug them into this algorithm and it spits out the most controversial and intentionally decisive statement that you can make. And it's done intentionally to divide communities, to make communities be at war with each other. Now, and I thought to myself, well, why would an enemy country use this? Why would they like it? Well, if an enemy country can do this and they can introduce such a controversial statement into uh, an enemy country then they can divide the country from the inside and they can attack in other ways and they can cause distraction and all that. Uh, and some people have actually suggested that, that what we're experiencing in our world today is something like this. I mean, you can't open up or, or, or turn on the mass media, Fox News or CNN, without controversy hitting you in the face. You can't open up your social media and, and exist in a world without controversy hitting you in the face. And even in advertising, they play on our emotions so much that we, we are, you know, strong emotions are elicited by us in one direction or the other. So, so what's the point in this? Why did I bring it up? Why does it matter? Well, it seems like our society is being pulled apart at the seams and that we're always fighting with each other. And so I... Because of that reality, and because it seems like we're constantly fighting, constantly being asked to pick sides on one thing or another, it seems like a good question to ask, how are Christians to engage in a world that is constantly fighting? Should we enter into the fray, or is there a better way for us to, to work, to, to, to get along with folks? And how are we to engage with each other? And how are we to operate within the church? Well, here's the reality. Since Genesis chapter 3, the world has always been the way that it is. Constantly in struggle. Constantly in strife. Constantly seeming like there are opposing forces pulling at and ripping at the scene. And the good news is that since Genesis 3.15, God has been at work to fix those things. And the thing that he primarily uses to bring peace into the world is his son Jesus Christ but also those that believe in Jesus and that's what this passage I think addresses for us this morning how do we unite how do we operate with each other how do we work with people and and discuss things with people out in the world so that's what I think these two um, 
these two verses do for us this morning. Let me read it for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And remember, this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you this morning. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to understand and to apply this word for us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word this morning, and we pray that we would take it to heart, that you would help us by the work of the Spirit, to understand what you are saying here to us, uh, that we would not be defensive about ourselves, but that we would accept what this says about us, and also, Lord, that we would accept uh, what it says about forgiveness in Jesus Christ and how we can operate in the world that is full of strife. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, I just want to look at this in in two ways, uh, just two points. Uh, First, I think in verse 14, Paul is telling us how we interact with each other in the church. So that's what we see in verse 14. Paul is addressing the church. Um, How is, and and the title of the sermon is Body at Work, the Body of Christ, the Church of Christ. How are we to work with each other is kind of the intention behind that uh, title. And Paul here is addressing the church. How do we know that he's addressing the church? Well, he uses four verbs. Four verbs that are primarily reserved by Paul to talk about operation in the church. And so uh, you'll see those four verbs as we work through these things. Uh, And and I just want to remind you that Paul is telling these individuals to do these four things in the church under the most extreme and severe circumstances. They were being drugged out of their homes. They were being uh, persecuted. Uh, And actually in Acts chapter 16, uh, you can go and read this. Whenever Paul and Timothy were in Thessalonica, um, there was a man, Jason, who became a believer in Jesus. They took Jason. They arrested Jason. So here was just a guy that believed in Jesus. They arrested Jason. They seized his bank accounts. And they essentially said, look, we're going to take all of your money and we're going to hold all of your money until Paul and Timothy leave. And then we're going to keep access to your money. And if they come back, we're going to keep on taking money from you. And so that was the way that the officials in Thessalonica dealt with the Christian problem. So here was Jason, a member of the church, who had his bank account seized. And you could imagine everything that he would be going through. How would he provide for his family? If he was an employer, how would he provide for his employees? How would he operate his business? How would he do all of this different stuff? How would he just live life in this way? And here's Paul addressing these individuals under this circumstance. The church should do these four things. So what are the four things? Essentially, it's this. Very easy. First, you admonish the idle. Secondly, you encourage the faint-hearted. Thirdly, you help the weak. And then fourthly, you're patient with them all. So let's look at this, each one of these in turn. Admonish the idle. We saw the word admonish last week. It can mean teach, but it also can mean warn. It has a, a very strong connotation of 
of warning people, teaching them the right things, but warning them of the dangers that they're in. And he says, warn the idol. That word idol that's used there, it's another military term. It's shocking to me how often Paul uses military terms to talk about Christians. Uh, and maybe he does so because this was a culture where I think most of the men were required to serve in military. And so they would have understood the lingo of the military. And Paul uh, employs this word to talk about something that they would have understood. An idle person is one who gets out of line, who steps out of rank. Somebody who isn't following the commander's order and is doing his own thing while the rest of the army is engaged in battle. And you can understand what would happen in that case. The idle person is being lazy and not doing what is required of him. And that puts everyone else in danger. If in battle, one officer or one, uh, one uh, member of the army decides to step out of line and do his own thing, that endangers everyone else. And that is why... Uh, That is why soldiers have it ingrained in them. Follow your orders. Follow your orders. It's for your safety that you do that, but it's also for the safety of your brothers that are serving next to you. So Paul, Paul employs this term to talk about Christians. He says, admonish those that as Christians are idle, that are falling out of line. And it's the understanding that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not showing up to work on time. Admonish them. Warn them. Well, you can understand why some people would be idle. They believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, which we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ as well. We believe that Jesus is going to come back very soon. We don't know when that very soon is, but he will return. And they believed in that. And some people said, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus, and that means we're going to stop doing everything that we're doing. We're just going to wait for him to come back. And Paul says, for those that stop doing the things that are required of them, that's dangerous for them. So they need to be admonished. I think in our day, uh, this hits home a little bit for me. uh, As I reflected on this, and I reflected on especially our teenagers Um, Because teenagers have a habit of doing their own thing and wanting to do their own thing. And if you are a member of Christ Church, you are just as much a member of Christ Church as all of the adults in the room. And you have privileges of being members of Christ Church and being part of Christ Church. But you also have responsibilities. In other words, you can't do your own thing. What happens if you do your own thing? This is for the adults as well. So pay attention, adults, but teenagers, pay attention. If you do your own thing, what happens? You put your brothers and sisters in Christ in spiritual danger. That's what's at stake in doing your own thing. Let me warn you about that. You are putting your brothers and sisters in Christ by your actions if you are getting out of line. So be careful and consider those that you love and those that you have taken a vow to to help and to do all of these things for as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that. Some of you are thinking to yourself, well, that's a lot of burden to put on a teenager. Um, it really isn't. It really isn't. If we lived in a world where we were being persecuted as the Chinese church is being persecuted today, we would expect very young Christians to stand up for Jesus in ways uh, that, that we just let 
other, we just don't even think about. It's not a burden to put on our, our teenagers or any of our young people. It's a glorious grace to call you to live for Christ. All right, so admonish the idle. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. I think the King James Version said, encourage the feeble-minded. <laughs> encourage the feeble-minded. Uh, well, faint-hearted, feeble-minded, it can be translated or interpreted uh, kind of in, in both ways. Uh, and you can understand why they would be feeble-minded or faint-hearted. They would begin to think, maybe this Christianity stuff isn't, isn't actually working out. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And maybe, just maybe, I'm going to going to give up on Jesus. And that's the understanding here. And you can understand why. They had their possessions taken, like Jason having all of his money taken from him, all of his resources and all that. And they would say, well, maybe this Jesus stuff isn't for us. And what Paul says is, for those that are struggling with doubt, that are struggling with, with not believing in Jesus, encourage them. And the word encourage is to come alongside of them, to Carry them through that moment. That's the work of the church. If you're going through doubts, well, first of all, share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let us help you through those doubts. We need to encourage the faint-hearted. And then he says, help the weak. Help the weak. And I think what he means here is both the spiritually weak... Um, the weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul talks about at various places, but also the physically weak. Uh, if you have all of your resources taken from you and you can't afford to buy food for that day, you're going to be weak. So the church needs to step in and help those that are physically weak. Help the hungry. Help those that are not able to take care of themselves because they've had everything taken from them. Step in and help them. Uh, the word help there, by the way, is a word that means to hold up, to, to hold them. Like you were holding a little toddler in your hand as you put him into bed. Hold up the weak. That is the responsibility of the church. That is our responsibility for each other. If you are going through a hard time and you are spiritually weak, then the church's responsibility is to hold you up through those things. And then he says, and this, this, is, this is where things get really hard. If you think everything's been hard right now, this is what he says. And be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. So he says, you may not fall into one of these categories. You may not be idle. You might be working really hard and staying in line with Jesus. Wonderful. Great. Uh, you might... Not be faint-hearted. You might, your faith might be really strong, wonderful, great. And you may not be weak, either spiritually or physically. Things might be going pretty well for you right now. And Paul says, if that's you, then you know what you need to do? Be patient with the idle people in the church. Be patient with the ones that are stepping out of line. Be patient with those that are faint-hearted, that are going through doubts. And be patient with those that are weak. This is, this is our big problem, I think. We have a tendency to think, well, we're doing okay, and it's everyone else that's the problem. And Paul says, look, you might be going through things, and it might be going okay for you, but you're not let off the hook there. Your real challenge is going to be to be patient 
with those that are a mess. So here is my command to you from Paul. Be patient with one another. And here's the reason why. Because we are an absolute mess as a church. Paul is not writing this to individuals that have it all together. And he doesn't, if, if they had it all together, he would not have to write these things. He's writing them to people who are wanting to leave Jesus, who are wanting to reject Jesus and get out of the church. He's writing to people who, who really don't want anything to do with the rest of the church. And he's writing to people who are lazy and don't want to do the things that are responsible for them. And that describes us. That describes who we are as Christ church. And that isn't just way back 2,000 years ago. That's Christ church today. This is who we are. This is why we need to be patient with one another. Because Jesus isn't finished with us individually. And he isn't finished with us as a church either. But as we do these things, as we work together because we have been enabled by the Holy Spirit through God's grace, as we can and, uh, you know, admonish the idle, encourage the faint heart, help the weak, and, and be patient with each other, the church grows spiritually, and the church is better enabled to handle and minister to people who are a mess just like us. Because a church that recognizes it's a mess will be very attractive to everybody else in the world once they realize that they're a mess as well. All right. So there's the work of the church. Be patient with it. And just remember, God is patient with you. God is very patient with you. Uh, Bebo, uh, one of one of the mentors of one of, of all of my mentors, would say uh, something like this. He would say, um, "Oh, I can't remember what it is. I've forgotten it." Um, oh well, I've forgotten it. I'll remember it in about five minutes, and I'll tell you what Bebo used to say. Let's move on to the second point. <laughs> second point in the world, verse fifteen. And again, he's dealt with how you interact with people in the church. Now, how do you interact with people in the world? See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he uses that phrase, one another, in there, and of course he means in the church. So yes, he's talking about how do you treat people in the church once again? Well, if someone in the church does evil to you, you do not respond with evil. Okay? (laughs) Now, that's in the church. But it's also out in the world. And here's what he means. Christians are not to seek retaliation for wrong done to us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and someone has done something wrong, if someone has said something wrong, if someone has sought to harm you in some way, you are not to seek retaliation. And this is not a theoretical command. Once again, remember, these are people that were unjustly persecuted. They had their possessions taken from them. They were being killed for the sake of Christ. This is not theoretical. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Don't go and seek your own justice. It's a hard thing to do. It says don't seek vengeance when you are wronged. And, and just so you understand this, Paul is not saying don't defend yourself. That's not what he's saying. Appropriate defense 
is a requirement of the fifth commandment. Okay, uh, It is a requirement to preserve life. As Christians, we are called by God to work for and work um, and to defend life where it is. Okay, uh, And again, it's a requirement of the fifth commandment. He's not saying don't defend yourself if you're being attacked. You have the right to defend yourself. What he's saying is don't go in the offensive. Don't go seek out those that attack you. But if they come to you, then you can defend yourself. Okay. And he says it in this way. Again, this is the put off, put on, be renewed in your thinking. The same thing that we've seen over and over in the book of Thessalonians. Paul's favorite way of telling people how to grow in Christ What do you put off? You put off doing evil to people. Okay? It's very simple. Don't do evil to people. If you are good in Christ, made good, declared good, don't go seek to do something evil to someone else. That should be very simple. Put that off. So what do you put on? You put on doing good to everyone. Christians are to not go in the offensive for vengeance or to repay evil for evil. We are to go on the offensive to do good for people. He uses the same word, that word there that's used, seek to do good. That word seek means to hunt down in order to um, in order to prosecute or in order to um, um, yeah hunt down in order to do harm. Not to do harm necessarily, but to hunt it down. That's what he's getting at. As Christians, we are to hunt people down, to chase them, to track them down, to do good to them, to bless them. That is God's calling on you. That's an amazing thing to say. He says, you are being tracked down and hunted because you're Christians. You're being persecuted, hunted for the sake of Christ. How do you respond? Hunt down for the sake of good. All right, that's an amazing thing that he says. He says, hunt down and do, seek to do the good. And that word, it means the beautiful, the right, the just. That's what you and I need to be hunting down people in order to, to give them the things that God says are beautiful. What does God say is beautiful? God says faith, hope, and love are beautiful. Charity is beautiful. Generosity with the things that God has given you is beautiful to God. Kindness to others, especially others who do not deserve your generosity or kindness. You were to seek people down in order to do that kind of good. Micah 6.8 says, You know, O man, what the Lord requires of you, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That's what God requires. That's what God wants. Of his people, we are to do justice. We are to love mercy. Love giving mercy and receiving mercy. In order to walk humbly with God. That's what it means to seek the good. Not just of your fellow believers, but of those outside of the church. In Jeremiah 29.7, uh, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, God is writing to his people who are in exile. 
They are living in Babylon, and Babylon is the picture of the great harlot of the Bible. It's the place of destruction and depravity, and terrible stuff happens in Babylon. And all of God's people are living in Babylon, and God's people do what God's people typically do. They get into their holy huddle, and they look at all the Babylonians, and they say, You're the problem with the world, not us. In Jeremiah 29, 7 God says, stop doing that. I sent you to Babylon so that you would tell them about the love of Jesus. Get out of your holy huddle. And he says, seek the good of the city. Seek the good of the city where I have put you, where I have sent you. You aren't here because you necessarily want to be here. I mean, yes, you are here because you want to be here, I hope. That may not be true for all the teenagers, but I hope you are here because you want to be here. But you're here ultimately because God wants you here. And while you're here, wherever it is that you may be, because you might be somewhere else tomorrow, seek the good of the city where you are. Seek the good of the people that God has placed in your life. Don't seek to do them harm. Seek to do them good. And here's what that means. It means you actually have to be involved with other people. It means you actually have to be involved in the city in which you live in. It means you actually have to enter into relationships with terrible, messy people who are sinners just like you. It's a lot easier to stay behind our closed doors and just deal with our own sin because it's easy for us to ignore our own sin. It's much harder to involve ourselves in the sin of other people and the mess of this world But that's what we're to do. Pursue, seek, hunt down other people to do good to them. And, by the way, this is how Christians change the world. That's that's the job that we've been given. We are to change the world by doing good in the world. It's an amazing thing. Now, why should we do this? Because that's exactly what God did to you. You know, you were running away from God. The picture that the Bible presents of us is that we were dead, first of all, dead in our sins and trespasses. But in the parts of us that were alive, we were, we were like dead zombies seeking to do harm to God. And what did God do? God came to us. He drew near to us. And the picture that the Bible presents is it, it, Genesis 3 is where this starts, that God hunts down Adam and Eve. He goes and finds them. To do good to them. Every sinner that comes to Christ, God has hunted down to do good to them. And we are to respond in faith, doing good to others. We do it because God did it. We love because God first loved us. So let me just encourage you in this way. If you've been loved by Jesus Christ, start small. (laughs) I I don't want you to go out tomorrow um, and start real big and say, I'm going to make a big splash for Jesus tomorrow. No, I want you to start small. And this is the way to do it. You're probably going to go out to eat. You may even go out to eat after church today. If you go out to eat, pay attention to your waiter. Just When your waiter comes, look them in the face. Smile at them. (laughs) If they get your order wrong, 
Be merciful to them. Show them mercy. And when it's time to tip, be generous. Be generous. That's the way that the world has changed. Whenever you begin to see that you have been loved so much, that even though you had a frown in your face, God smiled at you. That even though you run in the opposite direction and you always bring him the wrong food, he loves you and shows you mercy still. And what does he do in response? He gives you everything that you need and more than you could ever need by his grace and his mercy. So start small. And then as you start small, find other people to be gracious to. Because you have been loved so much in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today. And I pray that we would take it to heart. I pray that you would encourage me with this message. That you would convict all of us of the ways in which we have uh, fallen short of doing these things. That we would be kind to those that are out in the world. And I pray that you would help us in this endeavor. That we might begin to see changes in our own families. That we might begin to see changes in our own communities. And changes that, that spread throughout the world. Not for our sake, but for your sake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um.